All right, and our little ones can head out there. Let's show our appreciation for the children's ministry workers who take such good care of them. All right. We appreciate you. Well, good morning again, everyone. Good to see your faces. If you brought a Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. As, uh, as I mentioned last week, what we have in this pa- uh, passage is a picture of the early church in its innocence and infancy. Uh, it is preserved for us as a sort of plumb line. A uh, plumb line is uh, it's a weight on a string that you use to help make sure that your first strip of wallpaper is plumb or straight so that it can serve as a reference point for every strip of wallpaper that follows. That's the idea. And I say that entirely theoretically because I've never actually hung wallpaper. I've watched my parents hang wallpaper. Uh, But uh, anyway, that's the theory. Uh, The idea is that this is a foundational story. It's, It's a picture that we're supposed to look at and use as a standard and a reference point moving forward. Now, last week, uh, we, we decided to do this in two weeks. Just be, we could probably do it over seven weeks. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, there's that much good material here. But we decided to do it over two weeks so that we had enough time to not just learn, but also do a little bit of evaluation and ask the question, how are we doing? And uh, so we'll try to do that at the end. Last week, we were able to look at the first four of the seven aspects. You could maybe argue with me as to whether there's seven or 10 or six or eight. I don't know. As I studied the picture, it looked to me like there were seven aspects of a healthy church that Luke was foregrounding for our attention. And uh, we were able to look at four last week. We're going to look at three more today. So I'll start reading at verse 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, as I mentioned, what we have there is a picture of a good church. Um, And it's intending to serve as a standard and a a reference point for all of us moving forward. And so we're going to use it that way this morning. We're trying to answer the question, what does a good church look like? Last week, we drew all of our points out of the first two verses, and from those two verses, we were able to say that a good church has a healthy appetite for apostolic teaching. You can see that there in verse 42a, the first part of verse 42, if you have that open in front of you. And then we were able to say, secondly, that a good church is a family, a tribe, and an identity. They were committed to the fellowship. They were committed to the us. They they were us people, not them people. They understood themselves as a family of families. And then thirdly, we saw a good church is devoted to the ordinances and to prayer. And I use the word ordinances as opposed to just say they were committed to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. 
Because in the verse right before that, in verse 41, it says that 3,000 people were baptized that day. So they were baptized, and then they were breaking bread and, and praying together. And so we use that term just to kind of widen the lens and capture the picture as a whole. Then fourthly, we notice in verse 43 that a good church experiences the presence and help of the Holy Spirit. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Praise the Lord. So that's what we've seen so far. And now we've got three more, and the three that we're going to look at today come out of the next couple of verses. You're going to begin to see them in verses 44 to 47. The first thing we see, which is the fifth thing in our list as a whole, is that a good church takes care of the poor, the sick, and the vulnerable in their midst. Look at verses 44 to 45. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, at first glance, you might look at that and say, boy, looks like the early church was sliding towards communism there, right? Somebody, uh, somebody call and alert the, the authorities. Well, that's not what was happening. You can tell that they're not sliding towards authority because whatever verse 44 means, it doesn't mean that everybody sold all their property and that everything was held in common. We know that because in verse 46, it says they were still meeting in their houses. And all throughout the book of Acts, they're meeting in houses. So people obviously continued to own stuff. They continued to own personal property, personal houses. That was part of the process. Uh, what we're seeing here is not communism. We're seeing an ongoing commitment to meeting needs and to doing whatever it was necessary to do to meet those needs. So all the verbs in verse 45 are in the imperfect in the Greek, which means that they were occasional ongoing things. So as a need arose, it happened many times. They were always doing that. They were regularly doing that. A need would arise, and it was such that somebody needed to liquidate an asset to meet that need, and they were willing to do that. That's the idea. So this is not communism. This is spirit-motivated, free will, remarkable generosity. The church was able to do what it was doing because the people were giving might be helpful just to pause for a moment and uh, explain how the church operates. A few months ago, I had a couple of young people in the church come to me. Actually, it happened, I, it happened twice, but over about a three-week break. There was one uh, young person that uh, was sort of new to the church, and then a couple that had actually been here for quite a while. But it was interesting. They all asked, they said, you know, Pastor, how, how does the church function? Like, where does the church get its money? And, uh, you know, for for someone like me who grew up in the church, sometimes, you know, like if you don't ask a fish to describe water, uh, it's like, what do you mean, where does the church get? How do you not know this? But the funny thing is, we used to pass the plates, right? And so uh, it took you about 40 minutes of going to church to figure out where the money came from. But now, because of COVID, we didn't pass the plates, and so now giving is, is kind of done by the membership online. And so it is possible that you could go to church for a long time and have no idea where they get their money from. And I share that not to uh, make fun or, or scoff at these young people, because it's not completely out of left field, that question. Uh, they, were, they were thinking that the government gave us money. When I pressed back and said, well, how do you think we get our money? They, the assumption was that the government gave us money and that we distributed the money in the community uh, according to the criteria that had been set. And 
as I said, that's not a completely out of left field suggestion. That is, in fact, how they do it in Germany. Uh, I I'm, interacted when I was in, in uh, India with a bunch of German Baptists, and uh, their mission work was always really well-funded. And so we Canadian Baptists were kind of envious of all the stuff that they could do. They had these beautiful clinics, and, and, uh, and I asked them, because I'm, I'm bold and occasionally a little rude, and I said, where do you get the money for all this? And they said, well, it, it was actually, it was interesting what he said. He, he said, the, the German Baptist church is kind of weak spiritually, but they're strong financially, which I thought was odd. And uh, he said, because the way it works in Germany is you mark on your tax return whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. And then a, a section of the government's income is then redelegated out. You can just be Protestant, Catholic, or other. I don't know where the other money goes. But anyway, uh, the Protestant and the Catholic money is then sent out to Protestant and Catholic churches based on registration, how many people are indicated as being involved in those denominations. And so they get that money. It comes right off your tax return. And the government sends it to you, which I thought was interesting. Well, that is 100% not how it is done in Canada. Uh, there is no established church in Canada, just as there is no established church in the United States. Here, we put the money in the bucket. The government doesn't give it to us. And despite that, you'll still hear people on Twitter from time to time, every time a Christian does something that they find annoying, they'll say, man, it really you know, burns me up that we give our tax dollars to these nincompoops. Well, the good news, my friend, is you don't. Uh, that, that's, that's not how it works. Now, charities in Canada get certain tax relief, but that has to do with how much money we put in the government's bucket, not how much money they put in our bucket. We put the money in the bucket. And that's how we do the things we do. Here in Aurelia, in Newfoundland, in South Africa, we put the money in the bucket. And here's the thing that's awesome about the church. There's no other organization I can think of that is like this. Here in the church, there is no rule about how much money you put in the bucket or if you put anything in the bucket. That's part of what I love about the church. That is part of what is just and gentle and beautiful about the church. You could come here and you don't have to give anything. You could just be here. And we're glad that you're here, and we'll take care of you. And when you're sick, we'll bring you lasagna and shovel your driveway and help you get to your appointments, and we'll help you out with your kids. We'll provide safe mentors for them. We'll teach them how to play music, how to read the Bible. We'll support you and care for you, even if you can't give anything. That's how the church works. Now, even still, you'll hear people say, oh, you know, the church is just out to get your money. Listen, friend, if we were just out to get your money, we're doing an absolutely terrible job. The movie theater is just out to get your money, right? Like, let's put that on the table. That's why they charge you 12 bucks for a box of popcorn and $8 for a pop that you could probably make for 50 cents, right? They're just out to get your money. But that's, that's not how the, the church works. Can you imagine, by the way, a movie theater that functioned like the church? Imagine they said to folks on the way in, listen, if you don't have any money, that's fine. We want you to come in and enjoy the movie. We want you to take as much popcorn as you like and have as much pop as you like. And by the way, invite all your friends and family too. They can come for free. And nobody needs to pay anything. But if they want to contribute something, they can. Can you imagine a movie theater like that? They go bankrupt within a week. But the church of Jesus Christ has been operating like that for 2,000 years, and we're still here. And you know why we're still here? Because the Holy Spirit motivates people to give. John Stott says beautifully here, 
Already in the Old Testament, there was a strong tradition of caring for the poor. And the Israelites were to give a tenth of their produce to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. How can spirit-filled believers possibly give less? So that's how it works in the church. In a Holy Spirit church, we don't use law to motivate people to do anything. We wait for the love of God to be born in their heart. There are no rules about giving. Rather, we expect that as people become aware of how much God has done for them, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, as your understanding of the gospel grows, your desire to love and give back will grow. As you experience the love of the people of God, then you're going to want to love back. And as you see a need, you're going to be motivated like these people were motivated to make sacrifices in order to meet that need. That's how it worked in Acts chapter 2. That's literally what you're looking at in this picture. And that's still how it works in the church today. And that's why we're still here, operating with arguably the worst business model in the history of the universe. And yet we're still here because the Holy Spirit continues to motivate people to give. They don't need their arms twisted. They don't need rules. They don't need laws because the love of the Holy Spirit is being poured out into their hearts. They love the God who saved them. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They love the lost, and so they give. Now, the text says explicitly that they were giving first and foremost to take care of the poor and the needy in their midst. And I will tell you, that detail rubs a lot of modern-day Christians the wrong way. We have some funny ideas about what counts as, as charity, what counts as giving. And I'm not sure where all these ideas came from, but some of them did not come from the Bible. I think a lot of modern-day Christians would like this verse better if it said that they give, gave generously in order to meet the needs of people who were not Christians in the community. But that's not what it says. Now, that isn't to say that the church didn't need, meet needs in the community. Of course, they did. But they understood that their primary responsibility was to meet the needs of their faith family. And so they did. They, understand, they, they understood that they could overflow beyond that into the community. And so that's what they did. Even their critics seem to have understood that. In the 4th century AD, there was a Roman emperor named uh, Julian the Apostate who was worried because paganism was losing ground to Christianity. Christianity was growing so fast, and paganism was shrinking away. And so he actually wrote to pagan priests and urged them to imitate the culture of the church. He wrote to them complaining that the impious Galileans, or Christians, in addition to their own, support ours. And it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. So that was the Christian way. That was the culture of the early church. We took care of our own, and we overflowed into the community as we had opportunity to do. Not with the government's money, but with our money. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to give back. We want to shine forth. A good church is characterized by remarkable, need-meeting, spirit-motivating, motivated generosity. Thanks be to God. The second or sixth thing I think we can see in this picture is that a good church is a place to do life on a seven-day-a-week basis. I will be honest with you, I didn't have that in my first go-through, my first outline 
I left it out. And then the more I studied and the more I read, the more I felt like I can't leave it out. That's there. But it was interesting. My eyes kind of tried to look away from it. There's a couple things in this picture that rub us the wrong way. I've already mentioned one, the money one. You know, as, as North American evangelicals, we don't like it when the church starts, you know, reaching out a hand for our money or for our time. We feel like, hey, whoa, 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 that's, that's, you know, you over there, me over here, my money, my time. Those are things we want to control. But this, this picture challenges that a little bit. It sounds like people were holding their money a little less tightly than we hold ours. And it also sounds like they were a little more invested with their time than we tend to be as, as modern day Christians. So my eyes were looking away from it. I think the Holy Spirit kind of rebuked me and stuck my nose back in the text. Look at verse 46 and the first part of verse 47. Luke says, and day by day, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, as we talked about last week when we were talking about the prayers, right, it, it, it very much appears as though the early church in Jerusalem, anyway, was going to the temple. They were making use of the temple for their large group meetings, which makes a ton of sense. And they were kind of piggybacking on the regular hours of prayer in the temple. Temple was open, you know, everybody was going. It was, it was, it was great, it made sense. We understood, though, that that's not something that we could mandate today. For one thing, the Jewish temple was destroyed in AD 70. For another, there's a geographical issue, right? That wasn't even something that Christians in Antioch or Rome in that time could have implemented. But there's a principle there, and the principle is that they were getting together in large groups and in small groups on a day-by-day basis. That's the principle. It's right there. Church was not a once a week for 90 minutes kind of thing in the first generation. As the Tyndale New Testament commentary puts it, the religious devotion of the early Christians was a daily affair. I think that's important for us to see. There's been a lot of confusion, I think, in the last 30 or 40 years. And, and I'm even going to say a lot of ignorant legalism in the last 30 or 40 years around the Sunday dynamic. And I think I know where it comes from. I think it's a ploy of the devil. So let me just make a few things absolutely clear. Let me say, first of all, and I want to be real clear, pay attention, because like this has been sticking around for 100 years or so. Sunday is not the Jewish Sabbath simply moved forward one day in the calendar, okay? The early church seems to have understood very clearly that the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish Sabbath were fulfilled in Christ. My goodness, go and read Hebrews 3 and 4. Read Colossians 2. The apostle Paul says to the Colossians, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. My goodness, that's breathtakingly clear, isn't it? The ceremonial law pointed forward to Jesus. Its function expired the moment John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, There are ongoing principles associated with the Sabbath that carry on, right? But the ceremonial aspects have been fulfilled. 
So we don't need to be like the Pharisees in, in terms of what work we do on the Lord's day. And neither should we treat Sunday as the one special day for Christian gathering and worship. That's clearly not how it was in the early church. They carried on the principle of the fourth commandment while dispensing of the ceremonial forms. So they would meet on the first day of the week, Sunday, right? There's your first indication that they had made some changes, that they didn't feel bound by all the ceremonial aspects of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. They'd move the day. Imagine the disruption, because we're all a little fussy, aren't we? And I, the funny thing is, the older I get, the fussier I get. Uh, it's a weird thing. Uh, man, I, I'm super fussy all of a sudden. Uh, but so we're all fussy. Imagine the kerfuffle. There's a little word that you get. You use kerfuffle as you get older too. But anyway, imagine, young people, the upheaval, the chaos, the kerfuffle that would ensue in the church if we just said, just for fun, if we said, hey, listen, from now on, we're not meeting on Sundays, we're meeting on Tuesdays. That would just blow your mind, wouldn't it? Like some of you would start your own denomination, like you would have a full meltdown. In the early church, they, they, they moved the normal gathering day or the primary gathering day from Saturday to Sunday. Do you think they did that willy-nilly? What is wrong with me this morning? I'm just pulling out all these old person <laughs> phrases. None of these are written down. I don't know what's happening. I'm feeling fussy. But can you imagine if, if I mean, that's a pretty significant change, and they just made this change. They didn't feel bound they didn't feel bound by the ceremonial aspects of the law. That's what I'm saying. And they didn't feel that, the, that what they needed to be doing is counting how many steps. And where do you think they got that from, by the way? Wasn't Jesus always like, didn't Jesus give us lots of turn signals that his way of doing worship and his approach to days was going to be different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Don't you get lots of turn signals about that in the Gospels? And so we don't see people in the early church going around you know, checking to see whether anybody cut their grass. We don't see that. In fact, what we see in the first generation is that they went to church on Sunday morning. The, 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 the Sunday was the first day of the week. They, they did that to commemorate that that's the day that Jesus exited from the tomb. But then do you know what? They went to work after that because Sunday was not a common pause day in Israel, nor was it in Rome. So they went to church on Sunday morning and then they went to work, and then it sounds like they got back together in the afternoon during the hours of prayer, because that was kind of like a siesta in that culture. They all got together again. And then it looks like, if we're reading this picture right, they got back together in the evening to share meals together and to have a time of table fellowship, prayer, and praise. You see in that? Church was an all-day, seven-day-a-week affair for them. And that's one of the reasons I think I said, like I said, we need to push back on ignorant legalism. The devil would love for you to think. I'm convinced that the whole silliness and legalism that we went through for probably about 60, 70 years now on this stuff, that the ultimate author of that silliness is the devil. Because the devil would love for you to think that there is a law that you have to go to church for 90 minutes on Sunday morning. And then you have to hide in your house watching football for the rest of the day so that no one catches you cutting your grass on the Sabbath. The only one who wins in that arrangement is, is the devil, right? 
Because that is not at all what the Bible is talking about here. What we see in this depiction is that the church was spending much time together in large group, in small group. None of it had anything to do with when you cut your grass. They were together. They were doing life together. They were in the word together, and that mattered to them. Can you say amen to that principle? Now, dealing with principles and pictures leaves a fair bit of flexibility for application, which is marvelous. John Calvin took that approach. Listen to what he said. This is interesting. Sometimes we think that this legalism has been around forever. It has not. Listen to what one of the early reformers said. He said, we do not by any means observe days as though there were any sacredness in holidays or as though it were not lawful to labor upon them, but that respect is paid to government and order, not to days. So by government there, he means church government, not state government. He, he's saying, we don't do this because we think, you know, one day is more sacred than the other. And we're not out, we don't send out inspectors to see who's cutting their grass. That's not what it's about for us. He says, we, we make meetings, we establish, for the purposes of government, meaning for the purposes of order, we decide when, when we're going to meet. Not because we have to, but because we want to. You know, in Calvin's Geneva, where he was pastor, they met on Sunday mornings. And on Sunday mornings, he would preach through the New Testament. And then they also met midweek. And at the midweek services, he preached on the Old Testament. Now, is there, is there a law in the Bible? Is there a rule in the Bible that you got to do it that way? No. That's the way they wanted to do it. That's the way they decided. That's what they did for purposes of order. That's how they thought it best to apply the principles they were seeing in this passage. That's the point. The principle is pretty clear. There is no such thing as a good 90-minute-a-week church. They were meeting together often. And that's not what we're trying to build. We're not trying to build a good, and I know there are churches out there maybe who are committed to that. Like, hey, let's see if we can get everything done in 90 minutes so that all you have to do is come to church for nine. That is 100% not my aspiration. And we have to be careful. We don't want you to be so busy that you can't know your neighbors. We don't want you to be so busy that you're burning out. Of course. But we do want to facilitate opportunities for us to gather as a large group and as a small group because we see that right here in this picture. All right, then lastly, we see here as well, a good church grows as the Lord calls, converts, and connects people in their fellowship. We see that in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Isn't that good? This is why it's so much more important that we talk about church health than it is that we talk about church growth. Because this verse seems to be saying that the Lord delights to add people to a church that is committed to these things. The Lord delights to add people to a church that is committed to apostolic teaching. The Lord delights to add people to a church that is committed to the fellowship. The Lord delights to add people to a church that is committed to the ordinances and to prayer. The Lord delights to add people to a church that is moving in the Spirit. The Lord delights to add people to a church that is caring for the sick, the poor, the vulnerable in their midst. The Lord delights to add people to a church that understands the importance of doing life together. And so if we present him with a church like that, then he will take care of our church growth strategy. Amen? He will do it. Can I tell you something? 
Church growth strategy is a waste of time. And not only is it a waste of time, it re- it's reflective of bad theology. Because no pastor can grow the church. No elder can grow the church. And I'll tell you this, no church consultant can grow the church. Of that I am most certain of all. Apostle Paul knew that. He said to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The reformers understood that as well, reflecting on the explosive growth of the Protestant churches in Germany. Martin Luther said famously, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that drinking German beer is a great strategy for growing our church. I see some of you writing that down as your takeaway. (laughs) (sighs) Listen, your wife's not going to buy it. I'm not buying it, so don't bother writing it down. Okay? Here's the takeaway. All we can do, all we need to do is by the grace that God supplies, build this kind of church. Become this kind of church. A hungry for the word church. A committed to the fellowship church, an ordinance and prayer church, a moving in the spirit church, a caring for the poor church, a doing life together church. If we become that church, God will give the growth. He will do it. The word and the spirit will do it. He will add day by day to our number those who are being saved. Thanks be to God. So that's your takeaway. Now, how are you doing with all that? Like last week, I want to end with a little bit of self-reflection. According to the Apostle Peter, this spiritual house that is the church is made up of spiritual stones. And so we can always move from me or from we to me, from, from us to you. We can move from thinking as a group to thinking as an individual because the, those things are connected. So the question I'm asking is, how does your stone sit against this pattern? How does your life and attitude toward church line up with the picture that we're seeing here? That's what I'm asking. How is your attitude toward giving? You know, the funny thing is, I've been asked a couple times over the course of the, whatever it is, 20, I guess eight years now that I've been in ministry, I've been asked a couple times to go to another person's church to preach on giving. And, uh, and, and I get it, right? The basic idea is that the pastor doesn't want to look like he's twisting your arm. You know, listen, I don't care. That's the beauty of just preaching through the Bible. Uh, you, you just preach on whatever's next. And, and this is an important topic. We need to be, and it's treated in the Bible actually as, as like a fruit of the Spirit, as an indication that the Spirit's at work in you. So how are you doing? How's your attitude towards giving? That's all. It's not me twisting your arm. This is me checking your heart might be helpful for you to know that I don't know how much anyone in this church gives. By our polity, I'm not allowed to know. So I have no idea. You could all be sinning for all I know. There might just be one person funding this entire operation. Thank you, whoever you are. The rest of you are sinners. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So we can just talk in general terms here. I don't know who's given what. I just know what I see in this picture. I know there's no rule, and I know there's no mechanism for policing. That means this is really just a you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit kind of thing. 
And that's the way it should be, to be perfectly honest with you, because only you know your circumstances. Maybe you're like the widow in the, in the story that Jesus told, or it wasn't really a story, it actually happened, but the thing Jesus drew attention to in the, the story we know is the story of the widow's might. Remember the story, little old lady comes forward at offering time, and she puts in uh, two coins, so two loonies, we'll say. And Jesus drew attention to that. He held her up as a model. Not all the guys, there were a bunch of rich guys going forward. They had people playing the trumpet before they dropped in their gift. And we think that's ridiculous because we're, you know, Canadian and we're all very, I've been in churches where, they, where the people march up and down uh, the aisles and put their offering in the, in the box as part of the service. It dep- it's culture by culture. But in this culture, there was a lot of ostentatious display around giving. You wanted your neighbors to know you were making sacrifices for the Lord. Jesus draws attention to this, this little old lady who's only putting $2 in. But the deal is, Jesus knew her heart, and Jesus knew her circumstance, and he was trying to point out that it was because of her faith, and it was because of her stage-appropriate, age-appropriate, income-appropriate sacrifice that he was well-pleased. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. So the only question you need to be asking this morning is, is that you? Is that me? Second thing here, how are you doing with day-by-day faith? Are you one of those 90, 90 minutes a week kind of Christians? By the way, here's what's shocking and sad. Uh, maybe you came to church looking for something shocking and sad. Well, here it is. Uh, according, I just got this information sent to me. I've been hearing whispers about it, and I'd seen an American version of this too. I'm always curious as a Canadian how similar Canadian demographics and church demographics are to American because there's, there's a higher percentage of Americans in the States, and plus also there's more cultural fanfare around Christianity in the States than here, so I'm always curious. Anyway, and there's a, a thread of cultural Christianity in the States where people will say they're a Christian for political purposes in the States, and, culture, and then I have no category for that in Canada. That does not happen here. So the stats are often kind of weird. But I had been seeing stats coming out of the States saying that over the last couple of years, um, regular church attendance among evangelicals, and evangelicals historically have the highest rate of attendance across Christendom. A a lot of, like I I was friends with a Catholic priest once, and I asked him how many people come to his church, and the number he gave me was astronomical. I think he said it was 8,000 people. I said, how do you fit all these people in this room? And he said, oh, no, 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 most of them only come once or twice every three or four years. And I'm like, oh, I said, well, how many people are in here for a service? It's like, oh, like 250. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is a different story, right? Evangelicals is a different story. By and large, you look around this room, that's how big a church we are. We're a church of about 550, and there'll be probably 480 of you in this room today other than and the people who aren't here are sick. It's, it's, it's a little different, but that's a general truth. What I've been hearing is over the last couple of years, three or four years, it's really been changing and so it's gone from most evangelicals were indicating they go to church three, three times a month, so three weeks out of four. The new average is, is two plus times a month. Two plus times a month. Which if you work it out, that's like 27, 28 times a year. That's a long, like do the math on that. That's 45 hours a year. That's a long way That's a long way from what we're seeing in this picture. Is it it any wonder that we also see where we're at on sanctification and a number of other metrics? Anyway, so how are you doing? 
How are you doing with that? And listen, I understand everybody gets sick. I understand everyone goes on vacation. I understand that lots of people travel for work. So again, this is not about legalism. This is about heart check. Do you want to be here? That's the question I'm asking. Are you hungry for times of teaching? For times of prayer? I will tell you this as a pastor. This is anecdotal, meaning that I mentioned I received a study. That study that I, I referred to, but the two plus one, that came from our new denominational partner. A stat, a survey they did in partnership with somebody else. Very useful information. This is just anecdotal. I mean, I don't have any stats to back this up, but I've been in ministry for a long time. I will tell you, the single greatest factor in whether or not people are growing in their faith is what I would call secondary engagement. Meaning, the people who grow fastest in their faith don't just show up here 27 to 30 times a year for the Sunday morning service. They are also coming for something midweek. They're in a small group or they're in a prayer group. That's an indication of hunger. Do you have that? Is, so here's the question I'm going to ask you this morning. Is there anything in your heart, is there any prompting in your spirit to, to be here more than just for 28 Sunday morning services in a year? Do, is there a prompting in your heart to join a prayer group? Is there a prompting in your heart to be part of a small group? Is there a prompting in your heart to be part of a little service group? I wandered downstairs earlier this week, and I ran into a group of, of folks. I was going to say ladies, but it wasn't ladies. It was men and women in the kitchen fellowshipping together, and they were preparing the James 127 meals. That's a little micro-community. They're encouraging one another. I heard them sharing prayer requests. That's what I'm talking about. Is there a prompting in your heart for something like that? And, and then lastly, how are you doing with the Great Commission? Because you have a role to play, right? The, Lord, the Lord's going to add, but there's a role to play. The Apostle Paul didn't say, I did nothing. Apollos did nothing. <laughs> but God gave the growth. No, that's not what he said. He said, I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So how are you doing there? Have you planted any seeds this week? Have you watered any? That's what I'm asking. I want to challenge you to have a Jesus conversation with a non-Christian person this week that's planting a seed. I want to challenge you to encourage a new or young believer in their walk with Jesus that's watering the seed. If you do that, then through you, through us, God will give the growth. And we will be careful to give him all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor that he is due. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, it is so good to sit under the word. It is so good to see true things. And Lord, I doubt very much that there's a single person here that hasn't felt a rub somewhere in that picture. Lord, I felt multiple rubs. I pray that there wouldn't be resentment in any heart, but rather gladness. Lord, we want to be changed into the same image as Jesus Christ. We want to grow. And so these pictures are so helpful. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd give us a heart for change. That whatever is incongruent in our life with the picture you've just shown us, I pray that you'd just help us, encourage us, direct us towards helpful change. For your glory for the good of all our loved ones, our children, our friends, and our neighbors who need to see the church 
not just preaching the gospel, but living the gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name.